section. So we're going to jump now to chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, and look at the first 20 verses together this morning. That's page 852 if you're using one of those blue church Bibles. Title this message, Persuaded to Crucify Christ. Persuaded to Crucify Christ. So, people have an interesting way of getting others to do something. Here's one example of that. story goes like this. An elderly man in Phoenix calls his son in New York and says, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. Forty-five years of misery is enough. Pop, what are you talking about? The son screams. We can't stand the sight of each other any longer. The elderly man says, we're sick of each other, and I'm sick of talking about this. So you call your sister in Chicago and tell her, and he hangs up. Frantic, the son calls his sister, who explodes on the phone. No way they're getting a divorce, she shouts. I'll take care of this. She calls Phoenix immediately and screams at her dad. You are not getting divorced. Don't do a single thing. Until I get there. I'm calling my brother back. And we'll both be there tomorrow. And until then, don't do a thing. Do you hear me? And hangs up. The only man hangs up his phone and turns to his wife. Okay, he says. They're coming for Thanksgiving and they're paying their own fares. (laughs) Now what do we tell them for Christmas? I think that's more manipulation than it is persuasion, and sometimes there's a fine line between the two. But today we're talking about persuasion, persuasion, and I want to define it for you. Define the word persuade first, simply to get some somebody to do something or to think a certain way. To get somebody to do something or to think a certain way, especially by reasoning, pleading, or coaxing. There are multiple books, beloved, and seminars related to the topic of persuasion, and they are designed to teach people how to influence or sway others. Persuasion might be used, for example, to help a salesman close more of his deals with his clients. Persuasion might be used to help an employee convince his boss that he deserves a raise. Persuasion might be used by a young man to get a date. At least that's the way it used to be because it was actually hard because women resisted that and the man had to work hard at persuading them to say yes. I don't know how true that is today. But all kinds of techniques and strategies are used in the art of persuasion, like oratory skills or logic or confidence or when that all fails, yelling, threats, crying, begging. In our text today, I simply want to focus in on the topic of persuasion and see how it was used to bring about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and then consider some simple implications for us today. Let's look at the text together. Hopefully you're there already. Mark chapter 15, looking at verses 1 through 20. Just follow along as I read this section of God's Word. And as soon as it was morning... The chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, 
Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him. And they let him out to crucify him. There's a danger, I think, sometimes, many times, of us reading a text like this and seeing no implications for ourselves in the text. No connection with us. Hey, We weren't those people. We weren't there. We didn't do that. What's this have to do with us? A terrible story, certainly. The crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ and the conviction of an innocent man. But what's that have to do with me? So I attempt many times to try to bring it back to us because I think it does have something to do with us and I want to point that out this morning. So we're going to consider two critical actions that we must take whenever we are being persuaded And I'll work through the text and show you this so that we might avoid making sinful and devastating decisions. It's just that simple, that simple. So we have an outline that might pop up on the screen here in a second that when being persuaded, we must exercise caution before we act. And when being persuaded, we must exercise courage when we need to say no. Pretty simple. But before we look specifically at those points, I want to back up like we normally do and consider the context and then also look at some facts from today's text. We're also going to bring in a few details from the other gospel accounts about this story. So let's do context again, just to bring you all up to speed and and let us know where it is we are right now in the book of Mark. It is early Friday morning or on early Friday morning around 1 or 8, 1 a.m. or so, because now it's later in the morning. We'll get to that in a second. It is only around 1 a.m., only hours before we know Jesus would ultimately be crucified, which started at 9 a.m., Jesus was illegally arrested. He was illegally arrested because there were no charges against him. He was taken away by the Jewish religious authorities to be tried in the middle of the night in the courtyard of the high priest, Caiaphas. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. He would be tried by Israel's Supreme Court or what was known as the Sanhedrin or the council as it's referred to in our English Bibles. In that message, we covered that whole section. I think the title was called No Justice for Jesus. And I did that a couple of weeks ago so you can look that up online if you didn't hear it. At this illegal trial, the religious authorities struggled to find or come up with some charge against Jesus that they could make stick so that they could justify his execution. Frustrated, the high priest or the chairman of the Sanhedrin or this council, this official court for the Jews, asked Jesus about his identity as the Christ and as the Son of God, both of which Jesus confirmed. And so they accused him of blasphemy, of blasphemy. Now, blasphemy as we defined it was ascribing God's honor to oneself or equating oneself with God. We get that definition right from the Bible, Mark 2, 7, where Jesus forgave a paralytic of his sins, and the religious leader said, who can forgive sins but God alone? This man has committed blasphemy because he took to himself a prerogative that was only for God, that is the forgiveness of sins. Of course, we know Jesus Christ is God, that's why he could forgive sins, And as God, he is the Son of God in a unique way. But they accused him of blasphemy for making these claims. And at that time, early in the morning, because of blasphemy and according to the law, they condemned him as deserving of death. However, they did not have the authority to carry out the execution. And we talked about this last couple weeks ago. 
That right was reserved alone by the Roman government that ruled over them. So a few hours later, this all happens in the early morning hours, sometime between 1 and 3 a.m. A few hours later, around 5 a.m., according to our text in Mark 15, verse 1, is as soon as morning came, as soon as the sun broke, the council agreed to bring him before Pilate the Roman governor in charge of the province of Judea. And Jerusalem is in that province. And Jerusalem is the city where all of these events are taking place. By the way, a side note. The Jews hated Pilate. They hated him. Due in some part to some of the previous conflicts that they had with him that we won't go into detail about this morning. And on another note, Pilate was not fond of them either, especially their leaders, for he had gotten them in trouble, gotten Pilate in trouble with the emperor. So there is an antagonism that exists between these parties, Pilate, the Roman governor, and the Jewish leaders. So look back at the text, Mark 15, 1. There we're told, and they bound Jesus. We're just going to kind of make our way through this story until we get to a couple of these points. They bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Keep in mind that they knew that the charge of blasphemy would be of no real concern to Pilate. Okay? For Pilate did not worship the God of Israel. What does he care if they have blasphemed their God? He doesn't even believe in their God. He does not worship their God. He worships many other gods, but not the one and only true God, the God of Israel. And beyond that, the charge of blasphemy was not enough to justify the crucifixion of Jesus under Roman civil law. Standing before Pilate now was Jesus, bound like some dangerous criminal. In John's Gospel... And this is where we step into some of the other Gospels to pick up a few more details. We see that Pilate asked when Jesus was brought to him what charges they had against him. Because that's what you'd want to know. You've got this bound guy, what's going on? So it says in John chapter 18, verse 29 and 30, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. They were already working on persuading Pilate about how really bad and awful Jesus was. In a sense, they're saying, do you think we would have come to you if this wasn't really a dangerous man? Someone who needed the governor's attention? See what's already going on here? Then in John 18.31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. We're going to look at that in a second. The Jews reply to that and say, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. The Jews were allowed by Rome to govern their own matters regarding civil and religious issues. Okay, They were given a lot of, quote, freedom under the Roman government to attend to their own affairs. And Pilate had no desire to get involved with this case. He didn't like the Jews. He certainly didn't like the religious leaders. So he tells them, go take care of this yourself. Why are you even bothering me with this? Also remember in Mark 15.10, in the text we looked at today, we're told that he had perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered them up. He knew what was going on. He knew it was because of envy and jealousy that the religious leaders were bringing him Jesus. This wasn't an issue of protecting the public against an evil and dangerous man. This was about jealousy. They were jealous of Jesus' popularity with the crowds and worried that it could eventually lead to their demise. Why? Because Jesus regularly and publicly challenged their hypocrisy and exposed their abuse of power and the perversion of God's Word. They were jealous. They were 
envious. They were nervous and they knew they needed to do something about this Jesus. But the seriousness of the case would require Roman involvement. That is what the implication of their response back to Pilate is. This statement, okay, you want us to go away? But Pilate, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. See, if Jesus had done something worthy of death, that's the implication, Pilate then, as the Roman governor of that territory, had to get involved. Since the Jewish legal system could not put someone to death without Rome's permission. But blasphemy, as I've already told you, was not a strong enough charge to secure a death penalty before Pilate for Jesus. So Luke's gospel lets us in on some different charges that the religious leaders came up with to present to this Roman governor. And we find that in Luke 23, 2. There, the charges are made. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Caesar, beloved, is the title for the emperor of Rome, the man with the power over the entire Roman Empire, and more importantly, Pilate's superior, Pilate's boss. So charges are made now that Jesus is telling the Jewish people not to pay tributes or taxes to Caesar. Beloved, you can write this down and look it up in Luke 20, verses 20 through 26. That is a bold-faced lie. It is a bold-faced lie. There we're told that they came to him in an attempt to trap him, asking him whether or not they should pay taxes or tribute to Caesar. And Jesus responded, You render to Caesar what is to Caesar's and to God what is God's. And he stumped them and left them in silence. They're lying. Beyond that, they want him to know that he's declaring himself as Christ. Oh, Pilate, if you don't know what that means, he's declaring himself as a king. Well, the implications now intended for Pilate is that Jesus is a rebel against the Roman government, an insurrectionist, a real troublemaker, and disloyal to Caesar, the emperor. Now, this was a serious and persuasive charge designed to get Pilate's full attention and involvement. So Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews, and Jesus confirmed it. It is as you say. And we can look at all the Gospels and look at this story. And what we walk away with is that ultimately Pilate didn't see Jesus as a real or vibrant threat to the Roman government. He just didn't. Even though Jesus was acknowledging that he was a king and that is the king of the Jews, he really didn't take it seriously. Why should he? Standing before him is a bound and beaten man. Let me remind you from Mark 14.65 when he was brought before the Sanhedrin and they accused him, the high priest ripped his clothes and accused him of blasphemy and that he should die. They then took their turns of beating him and spitting on him, kicking him and abusing him. This is 1 to 3 a.m. in the morning. Jesus probably has not slept. He's been up all night. He's bruised. And beaten. And here he stands bound. This is a king. This is the king of the Jews. No concern for Pilate. Or Caesar. As far as Pilate was concerned. This was no king. In his eyes. He posed no real threat. The whole thing had to certainly appear ridiculous to Pilate. And remember... He understood that envy was the real reason Jesus was standing before him. Not because Jesus was a dangerous or evil man looking to overthrow the Roman government. So, he has an idea. And by the way, we won't cover it, but there's another section here in Luke, another 
step in this process where he sends him off to Herod, who's over the district of Galilee. He does that because he hears that Jesus is a Galilean, so he sends him to him to see if he can find anything wrong with this guy, again, hoping to get out of this situation, but Herod ultimately sends him back. He can't figure out what's going on. He can't find any guilt in this man either. So Jesus is back, still before Pilate. He's got to deal with this. So here's his idea. An idea that he believed would allow Jesus to go free and undo the, Jew, the Jewish leader's scheme. Kind of stick it to him. Okay? He doesn't like them. They've caused him problems in the past. He knows that they're behind this bound Jesus before them. They know it's because, he knows it's because of their envy and jealousy that he stands before them. So he would love nothing more than to undo what they're trying to do. Once a year during the Passover feast, it was the custom of the governor of Rome to release one prisoner selected by the people. We read that in Mark 15, 6 through 8. Look back at the text. It says, Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. This was an act of amnesty or pardon by the government. Now, you might think this sounds strange, but we have something similar. We still do it today. And on both the federal and state level, presidents and governors pardon criminals. So, nothing new under the sun. This is still a practice that goes on today. It has been suggested that this practice was a provision of goodwill by the government to try to maintain some sense of mercy among these people that were indentured to them or under their control. Try to keep the crowds calmed. We'll release to you once a year a prisoner. Anyway, at that time, Rome was holding a well-known prisoner called Barabbas, who was a really bad guy. He had even committed murder. Murder! That... That elevates him to the status of pretty bad. And Pilate offered the crowd a choice. Listen, who do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus? No doubt thinking that the obvious choice, beloved, the obvious choice would have been Jesus. And therefore, this whole thing could be over. Jesus could go free. And the Judas, Judas, Jewish leaders Plan would have been spoiled. Perfect. Now, we'll pick it up in Matthew 27:17 just to see how it's related there. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, beloved, this should have been a no-brainer. An easy choice. An obvious choice. The choice is a known killer or Jesus the healer. Because word has gotten around. Jesus heals people. He fixes them. He does things no man has ever done. He raises people from the dead. He removes diseases. He casts out demons. He feeds the multitudes. And then you got Barabbas. An insurrectionist, a rebel... A murderer. By the way, this is the same Jesus that they were shouting praises to just days earlier. This is Friday. On Sunday, when he entered into the city, they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Spreading out their coats and palm branches in his path as he entered into the city as a way to to demonstrate honor to the arrival of the king. And now we're here in Mark 15:11. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd. Remember when we talk about chief priests, we're talking about this religious council. They're part of this Sanhedrin. They're part of the same group that had tried Jesus in the early morning hours in a false trial, in a legal trial, and are looking to see him be brought 
to death. The chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Matthew 27 puts it this way, verse 20 through 21. Now the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. That's not enough. We just don't want you to ask for Barabbas. We want you to call for Jesus' head. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Going back to Mark 15, verse 12, Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man? You call the king of the Jews. You want me to, you want me to release Barabbas to you? Well, then what do I do with this guy? Really? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So here's the point for us this morning. Pretty simple. When being persuaded, when being persuaded, we must exercise caution before we act. Now, when I wrote this, I thought to myself, there would be some of you that would say, wow, thank you, Captain Obvious. (laughs) I mean, isn't that what we should do? We should exercise caution before we act when we're being persuaded? Or, that is, just before we act or before we think in a certain way would include that before we do something. But here's the thing, guys. People regularly don't. That's the problem. There'd be no need for me to say anything about this if we all exercised caution before we decided to commit to a certain way of thinking or to commit to an act or a deed. We think these people are so unlike us They're so like us. More importantly, we're so like them. We do not know for sure the arguments that the chief priests and elders used to persuade the people to call for Jesus' death. We are not told that. But what we do know for sure is that their persuasion worked. It worked. They were successful. Additionally, the fact that we are told that the crowd was persuaded implies that they would not have made the decision otherwise. Otherwise, there'd be no need for persuasion. Their decision, by the way, shocked Pilate. As you can just see it, you can hear it in between the lines, in the tone, and even in the words. Really? What evil has he done? Are you kidding me? I offered you Barabbas and Jesus. It also shocked Peter, and it continued to shock Peter, and we know that the Apostle Peter, as is recorded in Acts chapter 3, a message that he gave, this is after Jesus had already died, resurrected, and ascended to the Father. He's standing before the Jews, and here's the message that Peter preaches to that Jewish crowd, beginning in chapter 3 of verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob the God of our fathers, the God of Israel, the one true God, that's what he's saying, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. The crowd, beloved, was stirred up by the religious leaders. And as a result, they acted rashly. Not rationally. Not carefully. And as a result of that, 
Peter says they're responsible for killing the author of life, the holy and righteous one, and pardoning a murderer. These are religious people, beloved. We are continually, here's a little bit of application for us, we are continually being persuaded by sin. We are. Anybody disagree with that statement? If you disagree with that statement, come up and talk to me afterwards. I want to see where you live, what world you go to after you leave this one. We are continually being persuaded by sin. We are continually being persuaded by the world's empty and worthless philosophies, godless philosophies. We're being persuaded by bad counsel. That's, you know, it might be good friends and loved ones, but they give us really bad advice. We're being persuaded by godless college professors. I mean, some of you know the statistics about how many kids walk away from Christianity once they go into a secular college, a non-Christian college, right? I mean, they had 18 years. Well, maybe not that long. They weren't comprehending that whole time. But a long period of time, maybe, of mom and dad just pouring into them about Jesus Christ. They walk into a classroom, and in a matter of a, a semester or two, they've abandoned their faith. So easily persuaded by some guy up there who doesn't care anything about their soul or their life. But so quickly they turn. So quickly they give up everything they've believed in. And so quickly do they embrace this man's persuasion or woman's persuasion. We are persuaded by false teachers. Beloved, this never seems to... Or I, I, I shouldn't say it that way. I, am, I continue to be amazed by how quickly people embrace false teachers. And I don't know if it's because they're on television or on the Internet, many of them, that they embrace. And so there's some kind of connection between if they're on TV, they must be telling the truth. Beloved, I'm just going to tell you right now, if they're on TV, they may or may not be telling the truth. And many of them are not telling the truth. And so it gives some credibility to them or something. Or I don't know what it is, but how quickly... They will turn and follow after false teachers and deny the truth, walk away from the truth. We are persuaded by celebrities. Again, mind-boggling. We have the Word of God, but some celebrity gets up and says this, this, and this. Oh. Yeah, I see it that way now too. Really? They're a celebrity, beloved. They're an actor. Or a singer. That doesn't mean they know things. Like they're an authority on things. But all of a sudden, oh yes, hail, oh celebrity, I'll follow after you, exactly. I will change my mind and, and do this such and such. I, we are persuaded by our own sinful minds, beloved. Our own sinful thinking. We persuade ourselves into many things that we should not. And all too often we are too quick to buy into things and to do things that have destructive and devastating consequences that are sinful and wicked. Huh, young ladies? Right? Our young children? How many have made how quick they are to be persuaded to do things that are ungodly and wicked and sinful and destroy them and devastate them and wreak havoc for them and their families and those around them? Well, it's not just the youth, beloved. It's us too. Mom and dad are doing it too. We look at this group and go, are they insane? I cannot believe they would so be so easily persuaded to crucify the author of life, to call for his death in the place of a murder? But we may not be guilty of that, but we are guilty of similar things, sinful things, 
You know, it's sadly ironic to me that generally people are more cautious when it comes to being persuaded because there is a good persuasion, right? I want to persuade my kids towards righteousness. I want to persuade my kids to follow Jesus. Here's the joke, and it's a sad joke. It's not even a funny joke. There's nothing funny about it. People are generally more cautious when it comes to being persuaded to follow Jesus or to obey the Scriptures than they are about following the devil or sinning. And this, is, this has been my experience in life. I talk to somebody, I try to persuade them in what the Word of God says. Oh, I, you know, I need to think about that. I need some time. I need, to, I need to pray about that. I need to go away. I need to hear somebody else's voice on that. Oh, I see. But sin comes a-calling. Sin persuades you that this is a good thing. You want to do this. Don't worry, nobody will catch you. You're going to enjoy it. It's all good. Yeah. No caution, no praying about it, no, no hearing other voices. False teacher comes along. Immediately people buy in. No caution. No maybe checking other sources. But when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to following Christ, hold up. Don't be trying to push that on me. Let me think that one through. And that's who we are, beloved. Messed up rebels. That's why we need to continually be repenting of this rebellion, this wickedness. We need to be careful. We must exercise caution before we act. The crowd didn't. And as a result, they killed the holy and righteous one and they pardoned the murderer. Second, when being persuaded, we must exercise Courage when we need to say no. Courage. We must exercise caution. We must exercise courage. Pilate wanted to see Jesus go free. That is very clear. He did not want to send him off for crucifixion. Not because he was a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. He was not. Nor did he believe that he was the Son of God or a king but because he knew that there was no just reason for him to be standing before him. And there was certainly no just reason to kill him. The Jewish crowds had been persuaded otherwise by the religious leaders. But Pilate knew better. He knew better. He knew this was wrong. Look at John's Gospel for a moment. Well, it'll pop up on the screen here. John 19, beginning in verse 1. This, let me read it to you and then let me explain what's going on. So now we're farther along. They're yelling for his crucifixion. So, Pilate says here, this is what takes place. Pilate took Jesus now and he flogged him. He beat him. Cruelly scourged him. It's, it's so wicked and awful. It's so wicked and awful, I don't even want to... I'll, I'll say first, let me say this, okay? This is what he did. So he, they would, this is a process that they did usually prior to crucifixion. And it was designed to speed up the death on the cross, actually, because it brought a man to the point of death and sometimes it killed them. They never made it to crucifixion. They would lay them out and use a whip And in that whip, there were pieces of metal or rock put into the the whip itself. And then a couple of guys would take turns because they would get tired, lashing the victim. And when it would hit the victim, it would it would lock in like a hook on a on a fish. When you're fishing, you know the hook? It would it would lock into their flesh and literally rip out ribbons of flesh. Sometimes their organs would be exposed. So when they took them, if they survived that, when they took them to the cross, the bleeding would be so massive, normally they would just die of that process if the crucifixion didn't kill them. It was wicked, it was barbaric, it was bloody. So 
So Pilate takes Jesus, he flogs him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they arrayed him in a purple robe. That's uh, A purple robe is something for royalty. They're making a mockery of this whole thing. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they... I went off for a second. With their hands, and Pilate went out again and said to them, Now listen, so now he comes back out and he says, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crowns of thorns and the purple robe. Beloved, he would have been dripping blood. He would have been unrecognizable. He came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! And there's a sense here where he's... He, it's really kind of irony. It's like, really guys, this is, this is the guy that you're worried about? Look at him before you, beaten, bloody. Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him for yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. John's Gospel informs us, as we just read, that After having Jesus flogged, as I've described, he brings this bloody and beaten Jesus out to display before the crowds in what appears, beloved, to be a last attempt attempt to solicit some pity from the crowds. Some pity, some mercy. You guys are all riled up. You want this guy dead? Tell you what, I don't see any, I don't believe this man's done anything wrong. I will bring him to the point of death. I will, I will beat him. I'll bring him out. Behold the man. Come on. Mercy. Pity. Something? No. Crucify him. You take him then. I'm done at this point. Twice in Luke, we're told, in verse 16 and 22 of chapter 23, these words are recorded by Pilate. In the midst of this back and forth, he says, I will therefore punish and release him. Listen, you guys said he did stuff wrong. I find no guilt in this man, but I want you to go away. So I'm going to punish this guy, and I'm going to give him back to you, and hopefully that will satisfy you crazy people. Twice he says that. And another time he says, nothing deserving death has been done by this man. I cannot send him off to his death. What has he done? What has he done deserving of death? I'll beat him and I'll release him. But the Jews continued to hammer away at Pilate, believing that they would ultimately persuade him to crucify Christ. Back to John 19, verse 12. Very fascinating here. This is what we're told. Pilate's trying to get out of this. And they say, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Meaning, if you let him go, Wait till we tell Caesar about this. If you let Jesus go, Pilate, you are making yourself out to be an enemy of Caesar, the emperor of Rome. And by the way, Caesar, Tiberius at the time, was unpredictable and notoriously cruel as an emperor. Is that what you want, Pilate? You want to let him go, really? And Pilate had already had some problems, as I mentioned before, governing the Jewish people. And on one occasion at least, Caesar had to correct his inappropriate behavior. So Pilate is already, in a sense, on probation with the emperor. Mishandling this could certainly cost him his position, And it could cost him his life, depending on how it was all portrayed to Caesar after these events took place. 
Caesar, you won't believe what happened. We tried to bring an insurrectionist before your governor. He was deserving a death telling us we couldn't pay tribute or taxes to you. The whole thing is outrageous. They didn't want to pay taxes or tributes to Rome. They hated the Roman occupation. They wanted out from under the Roman occupation. Can you see it? Oh my goodness, Pilate's a traitor. We're here to serve you, Caesar. That's how it could have been portrayed. Ultimately, the people got their way. That's the end of this story. They get their way. They got Pilate to do exactly what they wanted. Mark 15, 15. Look back at the text. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate knew this was wrong, but he did it anyway. He knew this was wrong, but he did it anyway. He should have said no. But instead, he went with the flow. Not at first, beloved. He tried to work his way out of it. He tried not to do it. He tried to find another solution, but eventually he gave in. And he did exactly what the religious leaders and the screaming crowd were pushing him to do. And in the end, Pilate cannot blame the crowds or the religious leaders for his actions. They made me do it. He cannot do that. He must take responsibility for his wicked decision because we know that he had the power to release Jesus at any time. At any time. Because he told Jesus that in John 19.10. Speaking to Jesus, he said, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? At any time, Pilate could have said, Enough with you people. I don't care how much you're screaming. I don't care what you tell Caesar. This man has done nothing worthy of death. Put him away. But instead, Pilate allowed himself to be persuaded to consign Jesus to crucifixion. Even though he had done nothing worthy of death, even though Pilate found no guilt in him. Beloved, we regularly are, as I mentioned before, and will continue to be persuaded in many different ways and in many different circumstances to do the wrong thing. To sin. To dishonor and disobey God. And to do that which we know we shouldn't do. We must, as Christians, exercise courage relying on the strength of God's Spirit that lives inside of us, that dwells inside of us, to stand up and say no, not give in, not go with the flow, not yield to evil, not in any way, not in any way, not on any point. 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul tells Timothy there, a young preacher, he says, he reminds Timothy, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but He has given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. That's the spirit that we have residing inside of us as Christians. The power to say no to sin, the power to be courageous in the face of voices screaming for us to sin, whether they be our own voices or whether they be voices around us, voices in the world. Again, the tragic irony is sometimes we seem to have less trouble saying no to God than we do to sin. Than we do to what we know is wrong. Wes read it this morning. He talked about we have to rely on the strength of the Lord and His might and His armor because there's going to be battles. It's not if, when. When you have battles, there's going to be battles. And you will never be able to stand courageous against those battles. You will always succumb if you are not relying on the strength of the Lord. And beloved, I would add to that if you're not prepared for these things. If you're not prepared for these things by putting on that armor that Paul talked about in Ephesians 6. 
But we walk around like... I need to be careful. We walk around oblivious. That's the best thing I can say right now. We walk around like that's not going on. Beloved, we are being persuaded all the time to dishonor God, to sin, to violate His Word all the time. And if we don't realize that, then no wonder we walk right into it. No wonder we embrace it. We must exercise more caution than the crowd that was so easily persuaded to call for Christ's crucifixion. We must exercise more courage than Pilate who gave in to the many voices and sent Christ away to his death even though he knew it was wrong. Let's pray. Father God, I... I just simply pray this, that we would seek and rely on God's wisdom, your wisdom, Father, your grace, your strength, your might, your armor, your spirit, that we would, we would actively seek that out and continue to rely upon it in order to exercise caution, carefulness, and courage in all the circumstances that invade our lives and our minds on a regular basis where we are persuaded and not persuaded in the sense to follow after You or to obey You, but persuaded to do the exact opposite. To embrace sin. To dishonor You. To adopt a philosophy that stands against you to accept with open arms the doctrines of false teachers. Beloved, I pray that we would be cautious and courageous so that we might avoid making sinful and devastating decisions. Ultimately, God, that we would glorify You and that our good would be accomplished because the exact opposite happens so many times in our Christian lives. We fail. We fail because we weren't cautious. We fail because we weren't willing to say no. We weren't willing to stand up. We were unwilling to seek your strength and your help. We fail. We dishonor you and we bring all kinds of havoc into our lives and into the lives of those we love. Father, might we see this is a better way, a better way, and embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, beloved, we're going to celebrate communion together. We do that on the first Sunday of the month. Let me read this passage for you. You've heard it. It's very... Familiar with most of you, I'm sure. 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, records these words, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, Thursday night, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we do this morning. We're proclaiming the Lord's death. Those of us who have placed our faith and our hope and our trust in that death, who are following Jesus Christ as Lord, this meal is for you. It's a communion meal, a way to remember all that Christ has done and all that He is. But let me read another passage to you. And, and so in light of that, I would say this is not for you if you don't believe. You should not partake if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. Just don't partake. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul writes these words. And He, that is Jesus, died for all that those who live... 
might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. So beloved, as the elements are passed around like they will be in a moment and we hold on to those until the end where we can all partake together, as the elements are being passed around, think on those things. We celebrate His death, but remember what His death means for those of us who have embraced it. Dying for us means we no longer live for ourselves. If we have embraced that, we are no longer to live for ourselves. We are to live for Him. For Him. In the power that He gave us to live for Him. In the Spirit that resides inside of us. Who call Him Lord and King and God. And if that is the case, then we must be seeking always and every way to bring our great God and Savior glory. And we will not do that, beloved, as often as we can if we are not cautious and courageous when we hear the many voices persuading us to abandon our God or to sin against Him. I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I think I'm supposed to sit down. Yes. No, I, I, do I pray now? No, I pray, at, I pray at the end. I'm sorry. I pray at the end. So the elements will be passed. Is that right? Thank you. Just tell me what to do.
Father God, we thank you for these elements, this chance to, or time, special time to remember our Savior's sacrificial death on our behalf, our Lord. Father, it's through that sacrificial death, Him giving of Himself, His body, and offering up His life, His blood, that we have hope, that we have salvation, that we can have and should have changed lives because we now have living inside of us your very spirit, God. Father, help us to rely upon that spirit to live for you, to live for our Lord Jesus Christ, to follow after him more aggressively, with more passion, with a greater love and intensity that we might bring you great honor and glory by our changed lives because of Jesus Christ. Bless these elements now in Christ's name. Amen.